Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello again, friends and neighbors, and welcome back to the Bill Press Pod. It's hard to believe, but the war in Ukraine is now two months old, and for sure, a lot has changed. For starters, we're all surprised, even surprised that Ukraine still exists, and that's due primarily to the resistance and courage of the Ukrainian people, and also to the tremendous support given Ukraine by the United States and our European NATO allies. We're also surprised that Vladimir Putin has failed so miserably. It's pretty clear he's already failed in his first goal to abolish Ukraine, and he's now shifting to a new goal of controlling the eastern region of Ukraine, and he may not even achieve that. And now, with our Secretaries of State and Defense meeting with President Zelensky in Kyiv and U.S. diplomats returning to Ukraine, the war has reached a whole new level. So it's a good time today to get an update on Ukraine. What is the status quo and where are things heading? And no better person to bring us up to date than Joe Cirincioni, our own official Bill Press Pod foreign policy guru, former head of the Plowshares Fund, and a member of the Council on Foreign Relations. Joe Cirincioni, good to have you back on the Bill Press Pod. Uh, welcome back. Always good to talk to you. My pleasure, Bill. Thank you for having me on. So big news. Uh, let's start there with Ukraine. As the Secretary of State and the, and the Secretary of Defense actually sat down this past weekend with the president of, of Ukraine in Kyiv. Uh, how significant is that, Joe? Well, it's enormously significant. First of all, it's courageous to be able to do something like this. You remember just uh, two months ago, the U.S. was offering Zelensky, President Zelensky, rides out of Kyiv. <laughs> right. And now we're sending officials into <laughs> Kyiv. And they came with uh, not just messages of uh, you know encouragement, but eight hundred million dollars of new aid for the first time. A very large uh, component of that is heavy combat equipment, artillery, and armored personnel, vehicles, and tanks. And also with a diplomatic message, somewhat uh, caught caught us by surprise that the U.S. is going to open up the mm -hmm. embassy again. And we expect U.S. diplomats to be flying back this week and the embassy itself to open up in the next couple of weeks. And, and finally, it was just this message of the future, it's particularly the one that, that Austin delivered, Secretary Austin, when he said that the, the goal was to weaken Russia so that they couldn't do anything like this again. Well, that's an expansive goal that goes beyond just just uh, defeating the invasion. It it gets to the the post war future with Russia, and he's he was really putting a stake in the ground about where the U.S. wants to go with this conflict. So back to the diplomats. So we will have um, the not only the staff returning, but also for the first time since uh, what three years. Uh, 20, US, 2019, yeah. A U.S. ambassador 
in Ukraine. So is this a sign that we believe the war is over? No, no. It's a sign that we're, we just, we've determined, I think, that, that Russia is not going to win. Mm-hmm. That they're not going to win this war. And nobody knows where this is going to go. Uh, is it going to be weeks, months? Some people are talking about years. You could have a low-grade, grinding war go on like it has and since 2014 in the Donbass region. You could be seeing this for quite some time. But that it's, it's, it's secure enough and, you, and the Ukrainians have built enough of a barrier to the Russian military advance that you could maintain normal, well, mm-hmm. diplomatic relations with right. Ukraine again. And they appointed a very capable career diplomat, a Bridget Brink. You notice this probably isn't one of the posts that the political donors are hankering for. You know, when you really need an ambassador, you go to the career service people. Well, that's what yep. Bridget Brink is. And she's going to move over from the um, the embassy in Slovakia to go to Ukraine, hopefully as soon as as soon as the next next couple of months, if the Senate can expedite the confirmation. So, Joe, it's been two months since we first talked here with you on the Bill Press Pod about the war in Ukraine, uh, which started on February 24. Uh, what, what's the status today? It certainly has changed since we talked a lot since we talked two months ago. Well, it's a war now full of questions of Russian capability. It's clear that the battle for Kyiv is over and Russia lost. They tried a, a lightning blitzkrieg-like assault, very ambitious, but one that on paper looked like it would be easy for the Russians to conduct. They tried to encircle and take over Kyiv. They failed. They were beaten back You know, within the first few weeks. It was clear they were not going to be able to do this. It took two months for the Russians to recognize they weren't going to be able to do this. And now they're regrouping in the Donbass region. Remember, that's in eastern mm-hmm. Ukraine and southern Ukraine, where they've had a presence since their invasions of 2014. And, but he, and, and they've been amassing troops. They've moved about 75,000, maybe as much as 90,000 troops there. And they're approaching it differently with a more methodical advance, heavy armor uh, preceded by heavy artillery and missile fire. Uh, but, you know, it's been going on for about a week now. And again, mm-hmm. it's a little surprising. It's not moving quickly. The best description I've seen is, a, you know, a grinding slog. Which means, and then you keep hearing the phrase, fierce fighting. That means the Ukrainians are holding the Russians. The Russians are are gaining ground, a village here, a village there, but not rapidly, nothing strategic, nothing like the pincer movement that's been predicted where they would try to envelop the defending Ukrainian forces by getting around them. So it's not at all clear that, that Russia can win in the battle for Donbass either. Well, are you surprised that that uh, this has lasted so long, and why has it? What you know, what are the factors that have um, surprised all of us? I guess. Well, yes. Yeah, so we're, we're, there isn't a military analyst on the planet who thought this was going to happen, right? Right? Because on paper, it, it's it's overwhelming. You're the this is the third or fourth, depending how you count, largest army in the world. It's been it's spent decades on modernizing. You know, since Putin came in, he has been spending money not just on nukes, but on everything to build up the Russian uh, military force. The Ukrainian army um, is is small by comparison. Ukraine spends one tenth on its military compared to Russia, and it's been disorganized until recently. 
You know, it's only since 2014 that the Ukrainian army has recognized how weak they were and started to rebuild. So this is stunning. And it shows there's some long, there's some things going on that have long-term implications. For example, the ability of anti-tank weapons to knock out tanks, tanks mm-hmm. that cost hundreds of millions of dollars are being defeated by weapons that cost tens of thousands of dollars, the ability of them to use precision-guided um, ground-to-ship munitions, their their own Neptune missile to knock out the, 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 the Moskova, the flagship of the Russian Black Sea Fleet. Mm-hmm. You know, it's... It, it, And of course, the tenacity and how important it is for morale and for organization and for leadership. You know, Zelensky's decision to stay in Kiev is pivotal, absolutely pivotal. He kept together the political leadership. He inspired the population. You know, there isn't a person who could field a gun that isn't fighting in Ukraine now. And that is what's made all the difference. And it shows how just how difficult it is for an invading army to conquer a determined uh, 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 civilian opposition. And we have, the United States and our allies, have been providing Ukraine uh, support, military support, cash and weapons from the beginning. But it seems recently, Joe, as I've read, that there we're, we're giving them more serious or stronger weapons. I'm not sure what the right phrase is. Um, and um, that that's made a big difference, correct? Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's that's one of the stories of this war as well, is how well President Biden has managed the U.S. response. You know, strong, determined, you know, rhetorically powerful, but ratcheting up the aid slowly so as not to trigger a Russian um, reaction that could escalate the war into very dangerous levels. So the aid now is the kind of heavy equipment that Biden himself was um, uh, hesitant to supply at first. Uh, You remember this debate goes back to Obama, who didn't want to give the Ukrainians in 2014 even sophisticated anti-tank weapons for fear Mm -hmm. of escalation. So Biden provided those pretty early, but now you're getting 155 millimeter howitzers. These are long range artillery. This is the kind of thing you need to stop tank advances. You're getting helicopters, not U.S. helicopters. These are... um, uh, Russian-made helicopters that we secured in Afghanistan that the Ukrainians know how to fly. You're, you, you, you're getting tanks, not from us, but from Slovakia. He's providing T-72 tanks. Again, tanks that the Ukrainians know how to, how to man. And you see in France and, and UK and other, now give them heavy, heavy equipment. For this war, for this Donbass war, that's what you need. You need heavy armor to counter heavy armor. Looking back, you mentioned Crimea, you mentioned 2014. Was it a mistake to let to Putin get away with that without any any uh, sanctions? Yes, but that was it? Well, you know, I was on the International Security Advisory Board um, for Secretary Kerry at the time, and we were all stunned by this. We were doing a report on uh, rebooting U.S.-Russian strategic engagement when this happened. And all of us felt like, the, you know, the, we had come to a full stop. Everything, we had to isolate Russia. And we worked on this for a year, year and a half. And at the time, all of us were concerned about not escalating this. It wasn't just mm-hmm. Obama. Yeah. But in hindsight, Yes. 
I would have to say we could have gone further. We we should have gone further, especially seeing the effectiveness of the Javelins and other anti-tank missiles and the Stingers. That's the kind of thing we should have given them earlier. Ukraine's military wasn't in a great position at that point, and their leadership was, was relatively weak, nothing like Zelensky, but still, we could have gone further than we want. I understand Obama's caution, and, and as I say, all of us shared it, but in hindsight, yes. We, we, we could have done it differently. Well, we know that Vladimir Putin's goal, look, he's inscrutable for sure, to say the least. But we know his original goal was basically to crush Ukraine. I mean, he said that. It, yeah. it was not a legitimate country. It shouldn't even exist, basically be part of Russia. He has failed at that. What's his new goal? Do we know? I think he's conceded. It's hard to tell, of course. No one really knows, or unless U.S. intelligence is even better than we think, and they really do have a pipeline (laughs) into the inner leadership, which they seem to have in the early uh, weeks. Um, It's it's pretty clear that what he wants to do in in his more limited goal is to consolidate control of, of eastern and southern Ukraine, to link up the Donbass region with Crimea, this, this much-talked-about land bridge that would go right through the, the pummeled mm-hmm. city of Mariupol and uh, allow him to, to, to then move his forces further west and link up with Moldova, that is, and, and go across the, the rivers of Ukraine uh, to capture Odessa and then link up into Moldova, a, a country we most Americans have no idea where this is, right. and, the, and the tiny little sliver of that uh, that's, that's pro-Russian and has about 8,000 Russian forces there already. Um, and once that happens, that could have a huge political, psychological effect on, on, on NATO Europe, because then you'd be right up, Russian forces would be right up against uh, some of the newer member states of NATO, Roma- Romania, uh, Poland, Bulgaria, etc. Is that, if that is Putin's goal, is that acceptable? Would that be acceptable to the West? I mean, what, I guess... <laughs> Yeah, uh, I, I think of the question, what right do they have just to seize that territory on top of Crimea? And is that something do you think the United States or NATO would ever accept as um, uh, a compromise? Accept? Accept? Pro- yeah, probably not. You know, we don't accept the occupation of Crimea yet. But uh, as you're indicating, many people have thought that the way this war ends is a negotiated solution that Ukraine will unfortunately have to cede some of its territory, just recognizing realities on the ground. So right. sections of Donbass, you know, maybe formally recognizing the annexation of Crimea. But why? The, the occup- well, as a way to stop the war. Yeah. You know, you know and, and Ukraine doesn't agree to this, but they've hinted that they could arrive at some sort of discussion in their official offer. They talk about negotiations to determine the ultimate status of these areas. So they're open to talking about this. Ukraine is. Um, but but to, you have to realize what this would mean. You would basically, if the Russians... If Russia succeeded in its aims to link up Donbass with Crimea and then push all the way to Moldova, you would basically turn Ukraine into a landlocked country. You'd be cutting yep. off its entire access to the sea, including very rich um, areas of uh, with oil and gas reserves, and of course all the ports that Ukraine depends on to export its grain. So this would be lead to a tremendously weakened, maybe unsustainable Ukraine. So. 
thinking it out with you right here and now, Bill, I would say, no, this is not a situation you could accept. You could not negotiate a solution that ended like that. Uh, it's that's, It seems to me that way. And I know that's certainly the way President Zelensky feels, right? I mean, their territory is their territory. Um, and uh, no matter what Vladimir Putin wants, they shouldn't have to cede uh, any of it. Um, but uh, Joe, that that's your opinion and my opinion. And <laughs> people higher up in the chain than us will make, will make that decision. But for now, it certainly doesn't look like that's something the United States would accept, correct? Right. That's correct. Yeah. Uh, now, over hanging over us, uh, is this still this threat of nuclear weapons? And that has really bubbled again to the surface, Joe. Um, let's take a quick break and talk about that when we come back here on the Bill Press Pod, where we're talking Ukraine again with our friend, a foreign policy expert, Joe Sirincioni. Hold on, we'll be right back. Friends, you know, I'm like you, I'm sure. Every time we see the images of Ukraine on television, people being blown out of their apartment buildings, taking shelter in basements, fleeing to the borders, families breaking up. All of us ask ourselves, oh my God, what can we do? How can we possibly help? Here's another idea. Carol and I are doing this, and I hope you will too. Uh, let's help out the world's central kitchen. Jose Andres and his people are on the scene like they are with every major disaster. Uh, they're on the job in Ukraine, in Poland, Moldova, in Romania, uh, helping the refugee, providing hot meals, and a whole lot more. They need our help, uh, and that's one way to get help directly to the Ukrainian people, go to their website at wck.org, wck.org, and provide whatever help you can. Thank you. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Back with Joe Sirincione. He is our own foreign policy guru on the Bill Press Pod. <laughs> uh, for a long time, uh, the foreign policy guru of the Bill Press Show and also, of course, former president of Plowshares Fund. Joe, uh, welcome back. Before we get to the nukes, what impact do we know? Um, how can, what can we tell about the impact this war is having on the Russian economy? It's devastating. They have uh, skyrocketing inflation. They're, they're the, the senior Russian officials are beginning to talk openly about this. The mayor of Moscow recently said that the, uh, the sanctions might result in the loss of 200,000 jobs Ooh. in the Moscow area. I know this is significant mm -hmm. un unemployment. 
Um, so it's quite strong and it's going to get stronger. And one of the things about sanctions is it takes a while for this to work its way through the snake. It takes a while for this to, to feel its impact. And the sanctions are only growing stronger. You know, we still haven't done everything we can um, for this, but it, it, it's hard to see, frankly, this war extending for years, as we just discussed, with the kinds of sanctions that are being that are in place already and that are going to come. I, I believe the Russian economy would collapse um, before its military does. Do the Russian people know what's going on and do they support it? You know, there is a lot of uh, reporting that's making its way into Moscow, but via the the various forms of social media and uh, satellite communications that Russians have. But I am personally disturbed to see the massive anti-war demonstrations that we saw in the first week of the war disappear, Mm -hmm. harsh crackdown. You know, this is, I think it's fair to be calling Putin a fascist at this point in, in the way he's he sought control over his own countries, the, the mechanisms that he's using now to, to do this. And the state media is relentless in promoting a fierce you know, ultra-nationalism currently and talking about the Ukrainians as if they were inhuman. Another aspect to the, when I think it was the rising fascist nature of the Putin regime. And so it appears from what we can tell that a large percentage of the Russian population supports the war, that they're mm-hmm. buying this idea that the, the Russian aims are to denazify Ukraine and that the Russia is somehow the victim here, this kind of victimization that goes on with Putinism. Um, so it, it, it doesn't appear that the Russian people have yet uh, broken decisively against Putin. Yeah, except we remember that one brave TV producer yeah. who marched on the set with that handmade sign. Uh, right, but we thought yeah. that was going to be a wave, that that would trigger others, and no. it hasn't. Yeah, it was, in it some has. ways, it was the last major public protest against the war. And, and what, what impact has this had on Russia's standing around the world? I mean, you know uh, that um, I'm still on this serious study and business trip to Europe, uh, to Italy, Joe, so... Um, and I happen to be in Venice at this time where I spent all day uh, on Sunday at the Biennale, the, the incredible art from all over the world, mm-hmm. where every, you've probably been there, every country has its pavilion, and I mean, there are dozens and dozens of countries represented, and the Russian pavilion oh, is yeah. locked and shut down with police guards in front of it. They were thrown out of Biennale. Now, that's just one thing, but uh, has this hurt their standing in, in the world? It depends what part of the world you're talking I, about. Good answer. Right? Right. So if, if you're asking about Western Europe, are you talking about the West? Absolutely. I mean, you, we haven't seen something like this, I, I don't know, since the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. I, mm-hmm. I, it's just remarkable. Um, but when you're talking about the global South, the answer is no. And we don't see the Russian propaganda as much, but I've been on some television shows with, with in India, some uh, Arab mm-hmm. media where I'm debating Russians um, mm-hmm. on this or mm-hmm. on this. And the message in the South is, is, is they've clapped the disinformation campaign has worked. They've made this confusing enough that a lot of people in the global South are hedging their bets. They're not 
backing Russia, but they're not backing the West either. And in part, this is the heritage of our decision to invade Iraq. For a lot of people in the global South, the Russian invasion of Ukraine doesn't look different than the U.S. invasion of Iraq. And both under false pretenses, both tremendous casualties in the civilian population. You know, it's estimated we killed almost a million people in these global war on terrorism wars that we had in the, in the Middle East. So from the global South's point of view, it doesn't look that different. And so I would say we are we haven't lost the, the publicity, the diplomatic, the sort of po- political front in the global south, but we certainly haven't won it. And Putin is playing a very effective game there. And especially with big countries that have military and economic ties to Russia, like India and China. Uh, I know this is a tangent, but Putin did have one supporter in the West, and that was, uh, well, does, and uh, she is Le Pen. I guess we can all breathe a sigh of relief that she did not win uh, for president of France because that would have turned uh, turned France away from the West or Western Europe on this issue, Joe. Oh, absolutely. I think a Le Pen presidency would have uh, triggered the collapse of uh, of NATO more or less quickly. And particularly mm. if a Republican like Trump came to the presidency of the United States two, two years later. Um, it, yes. And I think this is part of Putin's game. You know, Putin's has has materially supported Le Pen's party, giving yes. them a major loan on this. This is not an, an accident that this is is happening. The good news is that uh, is that she lost by such a, a what we considered a landslide in the United States. The bad news is that the far right has polled the highest numbers ever. She right. used to be win about 16% of the vote. She came in with 40% of the vote, indicating that Le Penism ha- has a grip on 40% of the, the French population, similar to Trumpism here in the United States. 40% of the, the publics back a, a, a far-right, even neo-fascist candidate in both France and the United States, and that should worry us. That should worry us indeed. So now... Um we talked first a couple of months ago, Joe, about the fact that uh, we're dealing with a country, Russia here, which is the second biggest nuclear power in the world, uh, and and Vladimir Putin has even reminded us of that. And Joe, uh, the last time we talked, which was a month ago, uh, Putin had just said, uh, he used this phrase, elevated status or something, right? That basically he was, yeah. it seemed he was thinking more about the possibility of, of, of using a tactical nuclear weapons uh, in this war. You said at the time that Russia, you told us that Russia, I remember Russia had a, a, a sort of a built-in safety mm-hmm. um, program or system uh, with their nuclear weapons, which by raising it to an elevated status, Putin in effect had removed the safety uh, on the trigger. Uh, does that still concern you? Is that threat still real? Yes, the threat is still real. And it's still unclear what that meant two months ago. But those who know more about Russian command and control than I do um, hold to the assessment that he did, in fact, uh, change the alert status of the communication system. So this is all internal, whereas in normal times, it, you're, it's incapable of transmitting a launch order. What he did here was just enable it to accept and transmit a launch order. In effect, take the nuclear, take the safety off the nuclear gun. 
But there's been no demonstrable change in the movement of uh, Russian nuclear forces, mm-hmm. um, etc. No m- mobile missiles have been flushed from garrison, nothing like that. So, you know, it's it's not he's not ready. He's not getting ready to launch. And in general, I think most experts and the U.S. has been in the news in the last couple of days with intelligence and defense officials saying they think the probability of a nuclear launch are very low. And I agree with that. And it's always been low because there are such formidable barriers to, to breaking this nuclear taboo, to using a nuclear weapon for the first time since World War II. It's always been low, but it's not zero. And that's the part that concerns all of us. So is it safe or is it foolish to say that since he hasn't done so yet, he never will? Right. It's foolish to say that. I mean, he's he continues to rattle the nuclear saber. He conducted an ICBM test uh, just last week. You remember Joe Biden postponed and then canceled the our ICBM test so as not to send the wrong nuclear signal. Putin goes ahead with his in order to send the nuclear signal to keep indicating this. And you keep hearing comments from him or from senior Russian officials about uh, consequences should the U.S. Uh, you know, intervene even more in the war. So it's not, it's not zero. It doesn't, but, but it all depends on what, how the war goes and how the U.S. and NATO react to how the war goes. So we use this phrase, tactical weapons, tactical nuclear weapons. Uh, And I must admit uh, that most of us, starting with me, don't really understand what that means. I mean, how big are they? How bad are they? What would be the impact and what would be our response? Well, tactical really refers to where you use the the weapon rather than its size. or uh, mm-hmm. And it's sort of more about the range of the weapon than its yield. So uh, this is a concept that began in the 1950s when we once, once again were overestimating Russian military force and thought that Russia could conventionally um, a blitzkrieg through Western Europe, and the only way to stop them was to use nuclear weapons. And so we took these strategic weapons that we've been putting on our bombers, and we started to deploy them on uh, nuclear artillery, nuclear short-range rockets, etc., to stop that. And so that's what we're talking about: the the range of the weapon and the the yield of these weapons. Some of these short-range weapons, battlefield weapons, have the same yield as our strategic weapons: Ooh. ten times the size of Hiroshima, twenty Ooh. times the size of Hiroshima. So 150 kilotons, 300 kilotons. But uh, as these this line of thinking developed, uh, military commanders started to worry that we'd be self-deterred from using these weapons because they were too big. So the size shrank. And so then we entered a world where we're talking about Hiroshima-sized bombs, 15,000 tons, 15 kilotons of explosive force, still many times bigger than any conventional force, but something you might be able to manage in the battlefield. And then even smaller to one kiloton, 1,000 tons. So yes, these weapons exist in the U.S. arsenal. We think the smallest Russian weapon is about 10 kilotons, about two-thirds of Hiroshima. It's possible they have a smaller one, but the ones we know of, the kinds that could fit on their cruise missiles, for example, go range from one from 10 kilotons to 110 kilotons. And, and that you can decide what yield you want before you launch. Uh, but you're, you're talking about killing hundreds of thousands of people, oh, yeah. aren't you? Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. 
Uh, there's no question that the consequence of even one so-called small nuclear weapon or low-yield nuclear weapon would result in in tens of thousands, perhaps hundreds of thousands of deaths, massive uh, megafires that would uh, decimate a city, and of course, radiation, some of which would be intense and last for years, others which we would be um, low-grade radiation that could last for decades. And, and uh, the... The radiation would not be limited to where the the nuclear weapon struck, correct? I mean, right. That- Depending on whether it's a ground burst or an air burst, you would set, certainly be putting a lot of radioactivity into the atmosphere that would drift over. Russia and, itself, depending uh, which way the wind glows. So, how do we respond? Do we have any other huh. option than to well, fire back? Well, to prepare for this conversation, I started thinking out, well, you know, what are the odds? And I saw a, an official quoted as saying that he thought the odds of nuclear use were about 1%. Well, you, you can't really put a percentage on it mm-hmm. um, because it's not a quantifiable, this isn't a math equation, and it's so scenario dependent. So what are the scenarios? And if you don't mind, can I walk through five please, scenarios? Please, please. Okay. Yes. So the, the first possibility, and this is openly discussed in Russian literature, is to, that you would use a nuclear weapon in a demonstration shot. So you'd fire something into the Black Sea, for example. Uh-huh. And the purpose of this is as what they call escalate to de-escalate. If the war were going badly, if the Russians felt they were on the verge of defeat, they would fire off a nuclear shot to indicate the seriousness of the situation and to cause the West to back off. And this is openly discussed, as I say. Yeah. And this is one of the possibilities. If that were to happen, I would say the reaction would be shock and horror, but it would not require a military response. You don't have to do anything there. I would say the U.S. response would be more diplomatic, international isolation, maybe move to, you know, expel Russia from the Security Council, things like that, that you could quickly move to. The second stage is, let's say it's a very low yield weapon on a military target in Ukraine. And let's say it's a sub Hiroshima like, again, the U.S. would not necessarily require a, a military solution to that. It wouldn't necessarily need to act, but you could, you would absolutely see a massive increase in aid and, and a mass, a coupled uh, to with that massive uh, international isolation. The third possibility is they use a serious nuclear weapon. Ten, you know, Hiroshima size or more, 30 kiloton, 40 kiloton, and it, and it strikes and it destroys a city in Ukraine. At that point, that's where things get quite serious. And mm-hmm. I would immediately expect to see long-range um, military response from NATO. So not you know, you, NATO forces on the ground, but long-range strikes, which we're cur- per- perfectly capable of doing. Right now, NATO has more forces around Ukraine in NATO countries than Russia has in Ukraine. And we could strike the launch site, for example, of that strike and, and definitely send a message, do not do this again, because that's what you're trying to do. You're trying to control the escalation. You're trying to respond but, to this in such a way that you stop him from doing another nuclear strike. But you are saying that we would send a nuclear weapon into no. Russia. Still not no. yet. 
Because that's, not, this oh. is the thing about U.S. Uh, and NATO capabilities. We have such overwhelming conventional superiority. We can achieve nuclear-like effects without using nuclear weapons. Mm-hmm. Our, our missiles are precise. They're powerful. They're plentiful. So you could pummel an, an air base that had launched mm-hmm. this, for example, or a key command center or multiple command centers. And that's where I think we would go if we go to the fourth and even more serious stage where you get a nuclear use on a NATO target. And this, again, is discussed in in Russian doctrine as part of its escalate to Mm de-escalate. If you saw even a a so-called low yield, so Hiroshima-sized or larger, uh, used on a NATO target, then you would get a NATO air and ground assault, I think, that would just wipe out, again, conventional, that would just wipe out the Russian military in Ukraine. And we could do that. It would take a couple of weeks, but we could decimate. We could end the war in a couple of weeks if we, if we wanted to. And what you're trying to avoid is Russia firing again, firing another mm-hmm. nuclear weapon. So that's, that's where it gets extremely risky. You start doing that, and, and, and Putin may feel that he has no option but to, to launch, which is why the fifth and final stage, you know, if, if, Putin would use a nuclear weapon on a U.S. target. Again, this is discussed. Used a long-range missile to fire at the U.S., and then all bets are off. There's no question that the U.S. military command would be nearly universal in demanding that we respond with a nuclear strike in kind, and it would probably be multiple strikes to try to knock out the command structure and some of their capabilities before they could respond, including knocking out Putin himself. And uh, but I believe that these scenarios, these are being worked right now in the U.S. government. I just gave you five. I bet you they have a list of 25 that go into more, you know, fine tuning of what you would do and how you would do it. But I believe for many of these scenarios, you have to go quite a way up before you get to the U.S. Uh, nuclear response. Just so many questions, Joe. That is a masterclass in 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 nuclear war. But back to number five. If that missile is heading to the United States, from the little I know, I believe we would know it's coming and we would respond before it even hit. Is that correct? Well, U.S. policy is to do a launch on warning. Uh, what they yes. call prompt strike, so that, but in this situation, you know, we don't need to do that. And this is a left a, a response left over from the Cold War days, where we thought that the threat was a massive first strike that would knock out our missiles before we could fire them. So therefore, we had to be able to fire them within fifteen minutes, which we mm-hmm. can do. And this is an extremely dangerous posture to have. I've been arguing against it for years. If you saw a single missile coming in, I think the command would sit tight. I I don't think they would respond. They'd wait to to see what would happen again because there's so much uncertainties. Is it a real signal? Is is our communications, is our radar accurate? Because we've had false indications in the past due to computer error, radar error, et cetera. Is this a cyber hack? You know, is this, are we being spoofed on this? Is it, is it nuclear or, or not? You know, we don't know. And so the only way to know is to wait and to see if it hits. And then the responses you have before it hits are going to be identical to the responses you have after it hits. So you don't lose anything by waiting. Oh, so Joe, here we are two months in. And as you said, there are more questions than ever before. Um, how confident are you? Um, that we have 
the right leadership at the right time in this moment? I am very confident, based not just on my personal knowledge of Jake Sullivan and Tony Blinken and having met and fought and studied Tony, uh, President Biden over the years, but on how they've reacted so far. Uh, it's very hard to fault the administration's response to this war. I, I would say it's been really textbook perfect at this point, strong, determined, unflinching, but m- moderated in its initial reaction and then steadily moving up, unif- doing the biggest asset we have is our unity. And mm-hmm. Biden has done a masterful job of unifying NATO and allies around it. He's producing the, the result, the opposite of what Putin wanted, rather than splitting the Western alliance and scaring people away from the West. You now see Finland and Sweden rushing to join NATO. You see Ukraine strong and determined, fully backed by the West. You know, equipment is just pouring in and, is, and I see no end in sight. There's not a blink of protest in the U.S. Congress about this massive aid. We've now given Ukraine $3.8 billion in military aid in two months. That's what we give Israel in a year, and they're our largest recipient of aid. So you can see where this is all going. The visit of, uh, to end where we began, the visit of the two highest ranking uh, military defense officials in the country is an incredibly strong uh, message that we're sending. No, I think Biden has done a masterful job uh, on managing the uh, the the uh, response to Putin's brutal invasion and occupation of Ukraine. Uh, and think of this, Joe: that President Biden has given three point eight sent and directed three point eight billion dollars to Ukraine with no strings attached. He didn't even ask for one political. Favor, you know, <laughs> right, right. Oh God! Uh, imagine well, if we had Trump as president, or any of the Republican candidates at this point. Or, you know, it it's would, it would all been quid pro quo. People matter, and yeah. and Biden being president matters tremendously in how the West is responding to this war. And we're lucky to have you that we can call on to uh, walk us all the way through it, Joe Cirincioni. Thank you so much for your time. We will continue watching, and I'm sure we'll talk again, if nothing else, to talk about the end of the war, and hopefully that occurs soon. Thank you, Joe. Thank you, Bill. And that's it for today's podcast with Joe Cirincioni. Thanks so much to Joe, and thanks to all of you for being such loyal listeners of the Bill Press Pod. Please, please tell all your friends to join us every Tuesday and every Friday. And this Friday, I'll be back to host this week's Reporters Roundtable, bringing you up to date again with all the week's news from the White House and Congress with three of Washington's top political reporters. Until then, stay safe, stay strong. We'll see you on the next edition of the Bill Press Pod.